I'm heading northeast on Highway 101. The sun has already gone down. I passed over the town of Ware, New Hampshire in total darkness. Tomorrow morning when the sun comes up, I'll be over Maine. Earlier this evening, a carload of drunken yokels kept pace below me. They honked and screamed for almost 40 miles. They hung out the windows of their vehicle and gave me the finger. One of them kept gesturing to the American flag on his t-shirt. Obviously, they knew who I was, and I found this touching. Hardly anyone remembers who I am anymore. If I had known how quickly I would be forgotten, I'm not so sure I would have been so stubborn. When I was on trial with all the cameras and the reporters, I thought that I'd become somebody important. I thought that I'd become a political celebrity. There were so many TV crews at the launch. It went to my head. I fell prey to delusions. I assumed that the whole world was not only watching, but that it was paying attention as well. I assumed that my plight was the topic of every conversation, every newspaper editorial. I assumed that I would be the impetus for a mass insurrection, a national revolution. I was certain that I would be brought back down with an even greater fanfare. I imagined ticker tape parades, military salutes, and a fireworks display like nothing the world has ever seen. But I know now that I'm never coming down, for you all have forgotten me. I realize now that I was just another news item, just another front page picture. And now, 11 years later, I float above you all, unheralded and unrecognized. At best, I'm a civics lesson taught to the children of patriotic rednecks. So allow me to reintroduce myself. I'm the balloon guy. That doesn't mean anything to you, does it? It was the 4th of July, and I didn't have any firecrackers. Of course, I knew that firecrackers were illegal, but I still wanted some. You can't really celebrate the 4th of July without firecrackers. You can't celebrate the birth of freedom and independence without setting off a few explosions. When I was a young boy, my father would take my sister and I to Chinatown, and we'd purchase Roman candles, box tops, and sparklers. And as the sun would set, we'd fire our Roman candles at each other like gunfighters at high noon, while our mother shouted the Declaration of Independence through a cardboard megaphone. But that was a different age. That was before they took over and made everything illegal. For a while, there used to be this guy on 37th who was selling firecrackers out of his basement. He was my connection for years, until the police shut him down. One day, he was tear-gassed out of his apartment, and they took him away in chains. So, it was the 4th of July, and I didn't have a connection, and I didn't have any firecrackers. It was extremely quiet. 
I was sitting on my back porch drinking a beer and there was this loud, ominous quiet. I could hear the fabric of my jeans, I could hear my wicker chair, I could even hear my irregular heartbeat. It was a deafening quiet. I sat on the back porch like this for about an hour. The quiet made me think about how wrong things had become in this country, and it made me think about how bleak the future was going to be. I got really depressed, and so I decided to go out and get some more beer. As I cut through the alley to Western Ave, a guy in a hooded sweatshirt called out to me. Hey, buddy, you want to buy some firecrackers? You have to understand... I was extremely agitated. I was engrossed in all these dark ruminations. So when I said sure, when I followed this guy over to the dumpster, I wasn't really all there. Even when I took out my $40 and tried to purchase some Roman candles, it wasn't really me. I wasn't really present in the moment. But then the man whipped out a badge and suddenly I was surrounded by 20 police officers. Someone picked me up and threw me into the side of the dumpster. Then it was a blur of black leather and blue steel. I was kicked and beaten to unconsciousness. But during all this, during all of this, I assure you, I was most certainly present in the moment. come to in a small concrete cell. A man with no teeth is stroking my face. There are tears running down his cheeks. I can't understand a word that he's saying, but somehow I know that I am the reason he's crying. There are four other men in the cell as well. They all stand over by the bars. Their heads hang low. They won't even look at me. Something is wrong. Something is very wrong, and everyone in my cell knows about it, but the only person who will talk to me is the man with no teeth, and like I said, I can't really understand what he's saying. The next morning, I'm taken from the cell and brought before a judge. The courtroom is packed. I see Dan Rather and Ted Koppel. There are hundreds of cameras. The judge explains to me that I am the first Class A1 felon who will be put away under the new administration's three strikes, you're out forever, crime bill. I ask the judge if I have an attorney, and he laughs. Yes, you do, son. You're looking at him. The crowd laughs and bursts into applause. The judge stands up and takes a bow, and then he bangs his gavel and we all sit down. The judge holds up a crushed can of Pabst Blue Ribbon over his head. First of all, he bellows, you were drinking in public. A screen drops down from the ceiling. A red bowling pin lights up. Strike one, the court officer yells out. The crowd bursts into applause again. Secondly, he screams, banging his gavel. You had on your person obscene material. At first, I think I'm being framed, but then he holds up my copy of Big Ass Magazine. 
I forgot that I had that rolled up in my back pocket when I went out to get beer. I turn bright red. The judge holds up the magazine for the audience. He shakes his head in disgust. I'm mortified. I put my hands over my face. The cameras zoom in as he flips through the magazine. Pages and pages of big asses. I slink down in my seat. The courtroom boos and hisses. Strike two, the court officer yells out. Another bowling pin lights up on the screen. Then, the undercover police officer in the sweatsuit takes the witness stand. He points me out and says that I had tried to purchase $40 worth of Roman candles from him. He explains that in all his years as an undercover agent, he's never met such a depraved and vicious criminal. The judge thanks him, and a third bowling pin goes up. The screen starts flashing and ringing. Strike three, you're out! The cameras go nuts, and the judge pounds at the bench with his gavel while the audience shouts and stomps its feet. Then the lights dim and a video starts up. It's an informational video about a new super supermax prison. I learn all about the guard towers and the attack dogs and the electrified barbed wire. Then I'm personally greeted by the warden. He sits at his desk and explains to me that I'll be his charge for the next 50 years. The camera follows the warden around while he shows me the four foot by six foot cell, which will be my new home. He demonstrates the straitjacket that I'll be wearing 23 hours a day. Then he shows me the 10 by 10 metal pin in which I'll be allowed to run for an hour every morning. He holds out an assortment of rubber balls and explains that good behavior earns me the privilege of playing ball once a week. The camera zooms in on another inmate who's furiously bouncing a yellow rubber ball against the wall of the metal 10 by 10 pen. Beads of sweat roll down his face while the guards cheer him on. He bounces the ball faster and faster and faster. Then the lights go up. The courtroom is quiet. The judge tells me that in 50 years, my freedom will be restored to me, and I will have another chance to prove myself worthy of being an American citizen. The room is silent. The judge asks if I have anything to say for myself. I rise to my feet and I tell him that there is nothing in the world that disgusts me more than being a citizen of the United States of America. I explain to him how difficult it is to sleep at night knowing that I am a citizen of the country that is responsible for most of the international terrorism that kills and tortures thousands of innocent people every year. I tell him how infuriating it is to be unable to do anything about the greed and hypocrisy that runs rampant through every body of government. I tell him how I attach a Canadian flag to all of my luggage when I travel abroad. I tell him how sometimes I beg God to wipe this disgusting canker sore of a country off the face of the earth. I tell the judge that if I had known that prison would strip me of my citizenship, then I would have volunteered a long time ago. 
I tell him that I'm looking forward to the next 50 years because I will no longer have to swallow the lies and the propaganda of corporate media. I will no longer have to stomach the iron jackboot of the police state. My conscience will be free of moral indignation. And if perchance I do suffer some physical ailment for the first time in my life, I will have health care. I hold my handcuffed wrist out to the judge and I implore him to change my sentence to life in prison as it will guarantee me the peace of mind that my freedom will never be taken away from me. The judge just stares at me. His eyes are bugging out from his fat, fleshy face. The entire courtroom is silent. I clear my throat and say, Okay, then, how much money would it take to bribe you? At this, the courtroom goes nuts. The judge hammers at his desk with such fury that he breaks his gavel. I was supposed to beg and grovel, and then they were going to commute my sentence from 50 years in prison to 40 years in prison, and everyone would go home happy. Compassionate fascism. But I had ruined everything, and I had done it on TV. So they changed my sentence. They had to in order to save face. Instead of prison, I got banishment. Since you hate America so much, the judge screamed at me, you will never again be allowed to touch her soil. For the rest of your life, you will float above this country that you've disowned, and you will never, ever hear her name again. You really don't remember any of this, do you? It's a black balloon, and it's outfitted with all kinds of fancy gadgetry. There's a built-in navigation system that takes me back and forth across the amber waves of grain and over the Purple Mountain's majesty, from sea to shining sea. I also have a bread machine. An army plane pulls up once every three months and they refuel the hot air tanks, and I get a variety pack of bread mixes. Whole wheat, country white, Cajun dill, and chocolate chip. I have a built-in water system which works off of condensation, and I have a pair of binoculars. At first I thought they'd made a mistake, for it seemed strange that they would provide me with a link to the land from which they had banished me. But I know now that the binoculars were part of the plan. For the binoculars make it painfully clear that I have been completely and totally forgotten. Howard Zinn was one of America's most important historians and social activists. 
His most famous book, A People's History of the United States, is a radical retelling of American history. It begins with Christopher Columbus gloating in his diary about how easy it is to kill and subjugate the natives of the world. Howard Zinn was one of America's most important public intellectuals. He was a fierce critic of American myth and misinformation, both historical and contemporary. In 2005, we spoke about the myth of American exceptionalism. I call it a myth because what is mythical uh, is the notion that America is not just different from other places in the world, but superior, morally superior. We're not just technologically superior, geographically superior, militarily superior, we're morally superior. Uh, and in that sense, we're exceptional. For Howard Zinn, the mythical origins of American exceptionalism can be traced all the way back to the birth of the Republic. This is a notion that goes way back in American history and from the very beginning. The United States is simply better than other places in the world. Many of our founding fathers believed that the creation of the United States was divine providence. This idea was also used to justify the genocide of the Native Americans, and in the 19th century, it became the basis of our foreign policy. John Sullivan, who coined the phrase manifest destiny on the eve of the Mexican War, said that it was providence that had ordained that the United States should expand as far as it can. Uh, and and so the this myth of of manifest destiny, that, that somehow the, the Lord had singled out the United States, uh, given it a, a, the exclusive right to go where it wanted in order to expand in the universe. It takes a very specific form and enters the language when we go to war with Mexico and end up taking half of Mexico. As the 19th century came to a close, it was clear to many that America's manifest destiny would require more military campaigns, and the justification for these campaigns began to change. Not every American leader claimed divine sanction, but the idea persisted that the United States was uniquely justified in using its power to expand throughout the world. American exceptionalism was never more clearly expressed than by Secretary of War Elihu Root, Quote, the American soldier is different from all other soldiers of all other countries since the world began. He is the advance guard of liberty and justice, of law and order, and of peace and happiness, unquote. Well, at the time Elia Root was saying this, American soldiers in the Philippines were starting a bloodbath which would take the lives of 600,000 Filipinos. Elijah Root's ode to the exceptionalism of the American soldier may be 100 years old. But it's analogous to arguments our leaders make today when they claim our troops should be exempt from international courts and treaties. The idea is that America's military acts in the interests of not only its own people, but those it fights against as well. According to Howard Zinn, America's 20th century leaders use this rhetoric time and time again in order to gain support from the liberal intelligentsia for its military adventures in Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq. The liberals have always you know, found a kind of rational and moral reason for doing what they're doing. It's not just God and uh, the amazing irony that you have to send your army overseas and destroy a country for its own good so that it can determine its own destiny. 
For Howard Zinn, the only way out of this quagmire that is American exceptionalism is a national coming to terms with history. The arguments of the United States that its intentions are moral, that it cares about democracy, when those arguments are subjected to the test of history, that is the history of American foreign policy, then one must become exceedingly suspicious uh, because when you look at history of American foreign policy and you ask, oh, has American foreign policy been uh, uh, consistently in favor of democracy and of establishing democratic countries, democratic regimes around the world, you find rather the opposite. You find that the history of American foreign policy is a history of overthrowing democratic governments at various times, instituting uh, right-wing governments, supporting death squads in other countries. So history is one of the most powerful weapons. Up until his death in 2010, Zinn did his best to combat what he called mythical history. But he also came to realize that the main force sustaining American exceptionalism is the belief that America is the greatest country in the world. Most Americans, regardless of their political persuasion, hold this as a self-evident truth, even if facts say otherwise. I mean, this, well, this is a very important part of the myth of American exceptionalism. That the United States is simply the, the best place in the world. It, it isn't, from many, many points of view. It's simply from the sort of normal criteria of what is a decent society, uh, the United States, this is, despite all the television sets we have, and all the automobiles we have, and all of the you know, cell phones we have, and all of the superficial appurtenances, we, 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 are, we are not the best. We certainly don't treat our older people and our kids as well as many, many other countries in the world. Uh, we are doing more harm to other people in the world with our weaponry than any other nation in the world. We are an exceptionally aggressive and arrogant power. There's truth there to the idea of we are the most aggressive nation in the world. Dave Israel and Dave Dudley are two longtime Baltimore residents with a dream. They hope to bring a moment of exceptional American history to life. Well, in, in uh, spring of 92, we moved in uh, to a house on uh, Ford Avenue in Baltimore, South Baltimore. And it's called Fort Avenue because at the end of the street is Fort McHenry. Fort McHenry is the site of the Battle of Baltimore and the War of 1812 was actually 1814 when the battle was fought. Well, the war started, you know, 1812, but, but it, the Americans didn't kind of like turn it around and start doing anything good until Baltimore kicked the British ass in, in 1814. And that's why we're writing the rock opera because, because just Baltimore is not getting the proper credit. And that's why they're... Called 1814 with yeah. an exclamation point. Right. Yeah. The thing about the War of 1812 is that it's 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 America's forgotten war, and like yeah. most people don't really remember it very well anyway. So the idea of, of not even calling it 1812 and calling yeah. it 1814 is yeah. so we, we we moved into this house with Fort Avenue in '92, uh, and then I thought it was important that 
all of all of our friends understood the significance of of Baltimore. So we started having these annual parties in in uh, September, mid September in Baltimore is uh, Defenders Day, which is the anniversary of the War of eighteen twelve, and that's where um, you bring your kid and a bucket of chicken, and they have like the guys in the in the costumes and. They set off the cannons, and you know they do they do it all up and everything. But uh, we thought we could do a better job retelling the the story. Defenders Day used to be a, a actual municipal holiday in Maryland. It still is. Uh, some people still get the day off from work, but it used to be a a big civic holiday, and everyone would go out to the fort to watch the fireworks, and you get the day off from work, and it was uh, quite the thing. It has waned in importance so much in the in the last generation or so so i suppose that may have provided some incentive yeah. to reclaim the, the concept of the defender day so yeah. we had a party called right the defender bender the defender bender yeah, yeah. so we started to incorporate uh historical themed entertainments at the parties right. <clears throat> which we actually you know we went to the library and researched it all and then we got our friends together and and explained to them the first year we, we did a, a live reenactment where we were dressed up as various characters, people were assigned parts, and we retold the story and acted it out and burnt a lot of cheese. Um, yeah, we made a little model of the White House out of cheese and lit it on fire yeah. to symbolize the sacking of Washington D.C. Yeah. I, I was one of the I was one of the the kids that killed the British general General Ross when when the British they had a land attack and a sea attack, and the land attack was through a North Point, Baltimore. And uh, their main general, General Ross, got shot and killed by, the story goes by, like, two, like, teenage boys, pretty much, kind of. Um, and uh, I don't know, who were you in the... I have no memory of this at all. <laughs> I got really drunk. Um, I remember your brother was, was General brother Ross. My brother was uh, perhaps General Ross. Yeah. We sort of a British yeah. blowhard yeah. type. He's there were actually red coat, a lot of British well. blowhard types. We imagine all the British characters as just being sort of like Monty Python characters. Yeah. Um, but uh, there was General Ross, and then there was Admiral Coburn. Uh, uh, but Americans uh, made a point of pronouncing it Cockburn, uh, which irritated him to no end and uh, caused him to... Yeah. Set our capital on fire. He set the capital on fire. Uh, he's really the main villain. He's really the main villain. Yeah. He, he, was, he was a dick. Yeah. General Ross was just doing his job. He General seems like Ross a is a guy. sympathetic guy. He was yeah. just doing his job, and then he got shot. Yeah. That's war. Yeah. Oh, Two Rockin' to Lose. We haven't gotten into the old Two Rockin' to yeah, Lose. Two Rockin' to Lose is, is a, uh, a song that is uh, performed by uh, uh, Admiral Cockburn yeah. himself and sort of his character's right. theme song. But and it's basically it, an Iron Maiden with orchestra. Yeah, it's an Iron Maiden kind of piece where he's basically expressing the, the feeling of invincibility that the British had. Uh, they felt, in other words, that they were too rocking to lose uh, uh, when, of course, they, they would they were to eventually get hammered. But anyway, so two rockin' to lose is like this supposed to be totally cranked up kind of Iron Maiden kind of thing. Yeah. One, two, three, four. You gotta imagine huge guitars playing. They call us invincible, the pride of Napoleon's war. It's a matter of principle to humble the truculent horde. And then, yeah, it's, you gotta imagine like some of the huge leather along the wailing. We're too rockin' to lose. 
etc. Et <laughs> uh, one, one thing you need to know is that musically, the, the British are represented. There is like British steel. Uh, yeah, there's, style. A, there's a musical concept yeah. we're trying to work with, which is that the, most of the songs that are sung by the British and about the British are in this sort of a sort of a mid '70s classic British rock vein, yeah. uh, sort of Deep Purple slash Iron Maiden kind of things. Yeah. Um, whereas the American songs are theoretically using more American idioms, uh, like there's kind of a bogus country song, and there's a there's a, a it, it's it's a, it's what we call a half baked concept because we haven't really worked it all out, but but. Theoretically, the American songs work in more predictably American rock and country veins. So as we slowly build towards the 200th anniversary in, in 2014, and we build up the production, then we, we plan to, to approach Rob Halford, the Beast from the Priest, to, to play uh, uh, Coburn. Because he... he Cockburn, pardon me. <laughs> well, you don't want to upset him by calling him Cockburn. Anyway. I think he's over it. All right. Anyway... So, so, uh, so this, this would, in the, you have to imagine Rob Alford singing this, you know. So, um, where are we going? Burning down the White House. In the context, though, that, I mean that—that—that's that, actually the last song of the first act. Like the first act, it's—it's it's basically the British just kicking ass and burning down Washington D.C. and everything. They hope, and you know, like all hope is lost for the Americans. But then there's this spark of hope. Uh, George Armistead, who was uh, the guy in charge of Fort McHenry, went to Mary Pickersgill, that was a local flag maker, and uh, ordered up a big ass flag to in inspire the troops. So there's there's the big the big song one of the main recurring themes is is big ass flag um, because it's you know inspirational. We really haven't settled out on all the words yet. Mrs. Pickers Gill, we're in an awful state. My fort's not ready, and the hour is getting late. Oh man, I forgot the words. <laughs> that's alright, we're almost at the chorus, and that's the good part. All we need is a big ass flag. Big ass flag, fly up in the sky and show them all why. Yeah, fly up in the sky and show them all why. We'll never give 
up the fact So then the next verse is sung by Mary Pickersgill. It's like a call and response. Thing. But I forgot the word. Right the word. <laughs> but you can get to hear it with like the, you know the full band. <sighs> so the thing is, is, is uh, in the first act, actually, it turns out the British music does kick the ass of the American yeah, music. Was, you know, because people have mentioned that um, the British music is rockinger yeah. than the American music, which is not the intent, but. But it, it fits the story. So we have like this sort of Ted Nugent thing that the Americans get to play in a later. Yeah. Uh, Black Powder. Uh, yeah. Which is. Because uh, we, we, we got the chorus written, we can at least. I got the whole thing written. I just oh, don't did? remember it. Yeah. <laughs> High time for some offensive action. Well, ain't got nothing to lose. <laughs> I can't remember anything. So that's like a kind of a kiss, Nugent-like mega anthem that the Americans get to sing, and that is sung by a what is it, Sam Smith, who is the leader of the American militia uh, defending Baltimore. Yeah. I I envision this as being a moment where it's it's Defenders Day. It's September thirteenth, thirteenth that weekend, fourteenth. We're in Baltimore. It's a muggy day, and uh, we're playing somewhere in an open field somewhere in South Baltimore. Yeah, Latrobe Park. Latrobe Park, perhaps, which was used as one of the uh, the vantage points to spy on the British assault. And uh, we got a big stage. And we got a bunch of guys in silly hats, uh, reenactors with loaded muskets. Yeah, who yeah. we've already got lined up, by the way. Yeah, we got them out. Yeah, and uh, we're performing this thing with a with a cast of of Baltimore's. Rock elite uh, singing and playing the uh, the uh, various parts, and uh, we've got some fireworks set up. Ideally, we do it at, at Fort McHenry, but being a national monument, like alcohol isn't allowed. So, but so Latrobe Park is like just outside the gates of Fort McHenry, and we think that we can probably, you know, work it out with some kind of permit or something to be able to to, uh, to do the do the rock opera and yeah, and allow some alcohol kind of because permit or something. That'll be good. I I just think uh, if everybody wasn't drinking it just wouldn't work out the same. They're in, I mean, in, I think that's a problem with the thing at the fort every year, really. Yeah. We're just looking for that that yeah. that magical moment where it all right. comes together. Yeah, our like, biggest enemy is uh, our own laziness. Yeah. Uh, we need to actually finish this. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then we need to get some grant money. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta squeeze some money out of the state. Uh, but, but we, we, but we have to build it up to the point so that we'll by 2014, old. you know, we're gonna have like Rob Halford as uh, Cockburn. He might uh, be dead by then. He's, yeah. he's, he's we're, not we're yet thinking yet. maybe Cher as Mary Pickersgill actually. Is yeah, we plans. dream of Cher as Mary Pickersgill. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember. Who we had some other. Uh, I forget who the who the celebrity cast members are. So the idea is like in the beginning we make the demos. And it would be like local local bands and people playing it and become like this bigger and bigger deal so that by the time 2014 came around, you know, like all the shares and Rob Halfords of the world would be calling us for parts in, in the rock opera. And then, and then it goes to Broadway. Yeah. Alright, so this is, this is the opening and closing number, The Battle of Baltimore, which is sort of our frame piece. And uh, it's sung by a, a, a nameless first-person individual 
uh, in our present day. And uh, he seems we should probably name him Dave, I guess. Yeah, we'll call him Dave. And uh, he uh, he's he's discussing uh, about how when he was a kid he went on a field trip to Fort McHenry and he saw the flag and, and uh, he didn't really understand what it was all about. And he went home and he asked his dad about it and his dad sat him down and told him the story of the Battle of Baltimore and that becomes our, oh. our, 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 that's right. our show. Oh yeah, and, that, and that's, that, that gives us even better reason to be historically inaccurate because it's actually a guy remembering his dad's version of exactly. the story. So it's, it's like, you know, so far removed that, that the historian shouldn't have a problem yeah, with it. That explains why all the music sounds vaguely like the mid-70s. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, at the end of the piece, the, 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 this theme, the Battle of Baltimore, reappears with a, a different verse, and this is the last verse. History's written by the winners, I hear everybody say. And the villains and the heroes are really drawn in shades of gray. But still we keep on looking to our big forgotten past Cause I'll remember that our city kicked some British Empire ass Did they wake through the terrible night as the British artillery roared Through the day and the night of the Battle of Baltimore through the day and the night of the Battle of Baltimore. Again, imagine cheap trick playing. And the fireworks go off go off, the guys with the muskets march onto the stage, it's sort of, you know, the Springsteenian moment of anthemic glory. Every year, the American Southwest has forest fires, especially given the desert conditions of the area. But this year, we've decided that we're going to blame it on the immigrants. Inner Gumino Garcia learned about discrimination the hard way. A couple of years ago, he says, he was recruited by ATF agents to help fight America's war on drugs. But when things went sour, he claims, he was left holding the bag. On my first day at work, after the orientation and they showed me around, um, I was brought into this room where they were having a brainstorming session about how to tackle the drug cartel. People were giving ideas back and forward, but there was this one agent, very arrogant. He just wouldn't shut up about his father this, his father that. His father is a big shot up in the Justice Department, and he thinks that because of this, he can just implement any plan that he comes up with. To me, he seems more like a good intern. 
he came up with this stupid idea. Instead of preventing the cartels from acquiring guns in American stores, which they had been tracking and keeping tabs of, to instead allow the guns to go back to Mexico, we tracked the guns so that we could find where their strongholds were and attack them there. The part that is very stupid about this idea is that once the guns cross the border, it becomes an international issue. We have to coordinate with the Mexican authorities and there is no guarantee that we'll be able to track the guns once they leave America. I didn't say anything because I wanted to be a team player. But they put me on this morons team. So he decides that to do the tracking of the weapons, he's gonna go to Radio Shack and just Mickey Mouse a tracking device with some electronics from the store. And I'm thinking, why doesn't he get professionals involved? I mean, everybody knows that Radio Shack sucks. But there was just no arguing with him. He was dead set on this mission being done his way. We staked out the gun shop where we knew that the Mexican cartel was purchasing the weapons from. We had already arranged with the owner of the shop, who was the one that had alerted us of these transactions happening. We had put the guns with the trackers in them. He gave them those guns and they put them in a pickup truck and headed for the border. As soon as the pickup truck with the guns left the parking lot of the gun store, the tracker stopped working. As soon as I'm about to say, I told you so, Mr. Great Intern immediately turns to me and says, I have a great idea. You could follow them. It's gonna be easy for you, you're Mexican. My job was to follow these guns on the pickup truck to their delivery destination. And once that happened, I was supposed to inform my team where they were located. And I guess at that point, they were gonna do an operation similar to what they did to Osama, you know, shoot all these uh, drug lords in the eye. I followed them across the border, but eventually they lost me. They stayed in Santa Clarita. I thought they had gone on further and I lost them. The next day they found 10 bodies executed and the weapons that were recovered had the tracking devices in them. Once the Mexican authorities found the Radio Shack trackers, it became an international incident because as I had said, we had not informed the Mexican authorities of our operation. When I saw this on the morning newspaper, I decided I needed to get back to America. I got on my car, started driving, all the while listening to the radio to get the latest updates. 
problem about crossing the border is I don't have my papers because I was at a stakeout and we don't carry IDs in a stakeout. So as I approach the border, I realized that I'm gonna have a hard time explaining to these officers that I was working for the ATF. That's when I heard a report that the American authorities were claiming that this wasn't their operation, but the crazy idea of a rogue Mexican operative. Obviously, I'm gonna be the one out to blame for this. They left me holding the bag. Once again, the immigrant had become the scapegoat. I realized there was no way I was gonna be able to cross back to America legally. I had to find a coyote to get me back home. Surprisingly, this was very hard to do. It took me 12 hours to find someone who knew of someone who knew a coyote. When I finally sit down with the coyote, he tells me it's gonna take a while for him to find someone to take me to America. I don't understand why. I ask him, what's, what's the problem? He says, well, haven't you been paying attention? Today, everybody wants to go to China. Everything in my craft is bolted down. The bread machine, my pallet bed, the navigation system. They knew that I would be of the mind to hurl whatever was at hand, and they designed my craft accordingly. So I'm limited to bodily invectives. I'm limited to communication through virulent urinary tracts and truculent blasts of defecation. Occasionally, I'm able to connect with a woman walking down the street, chattering on her cell phone. And every now and then, I make contact with a man showing off his sports utility vehicle. But most of the time, my vituperative commentary on the stupidity and vulgarity that parades beneath me goes unheard. I've been stuck over Boston for weeks now. There's something wrong with my navigation system. I'm afraid I'll be stuck until the supply plane shows up. I'm stuck in a pattern which takes me over the suburbs and the strip malls and back through downtown. It's an apocalyptic loop-de-loop, -loop, for it's clear that this city is in its final days. The roads have linked up to form one snake-like strip mall. At night, it glows with the colors of Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. Tractors and wrecking balls tear down everything that doesn't bear the markings of this beast. Soon, there will be nothing but Starbucks, Gaps, McDonald's, Burger Kings, Toys R Us, Walmarts, Home Depots, Staples, and gigantic Behemoth Super Stoppin' Shops. The other night, I awoke from a nightmare, and I thought that I was over Vegas. Downtown is getting at the worst. There are new luxury high-rises everywhere, and the wealthy suburbanites are taking back the elegant brownstones. 
the squatters and the street poets and the junkies are awakening to the fact that their world has changed hands. They're no longer welcome in their neighborhood bars. They're no longer left alone by the police. They no longer even exist. They stare through their hands in horror as they melt away in the hot afternoon sunlight. Their passing is marked only by the rush for the empty street corners. Angry suburban teenagers and frustrated music school dropouts battle it out while anything but PhDs fight over the empty bar stools. I spend most of the day now curled up on the floor of my gondola with my hands clamped over my ears. But I can't block out the buzz. I think I'm going mad. There's a girl who lives at the corner of 12th and Broadway. She has a cat and she plays the banjo. She rides a bicycle with a basket on the front. She is undaunted by the franchises or the wrecking balls. She frequents Boston's few remaining used record stores and secondhand bookshops. She stays up late. She reads Russian literature and listens to 45 records with the window open. She isn't even daunted by the giant super stop and shop sign, which buzzes obnoxiously down the block. Every Sunday, she takes her cat out on a leash and rides down to the river. She puts the cat in the front basket and it stares out wide-eyed as the girl maneuvers through traffic, dodging the monster trucks and the monster cars. When she gets to the Charles River, the girl loops the leash around her ankle. The cat chases after the river geese while she reads large, tattered paperbacks. Today, a boy sat down next to her. He asked her if she was enjoying the book. She was reading Anna Karenina. She turned to him and said yes, she was enjoying her book, and then she continued to read. This boy should have gotten up and walked away, but he didn't. He chewed on a blade of grass and made faces at the cat, who was cautiously watching him. Then he asked her whether she thought Anna's attraction to Vronsky stemmed from his brash behavior on the train, or was it rather just a case of intense physical attraction? The girl lowered her book and thought about it for a moment. The boy took the cat into his lap and stroked its fur. I'm not sure what her reply was. While I am quite good at reading lips, I missed a reply entirely. The two discussed Tolstoy and Russian literature for a few hours, and then the girl put the cat into the basket and got onto her bike. The boy had a bike as well, and the two rode to a small Italian restaurant in the Fenway. They tied their bikes up outside and sat at a table in the window. The boy told the girl about how much he hated his PhD program and about how life didn't really begin for him until he dropped out and moved to the city. She told him about her banjo and her desire to one day write as many good songs as Lou Reed. The two drank a bottle of wine, and when they emerged from the restaurant, her face was flushed. The boy kept running his hands through his brown, curly hair. They rode to her apartment at 12th and Broadway. She invited the boy up. Her apartment is very small, two rooms. She put on some music 
they sat down next to each other on the bed. Soon their mouths were intertwined. His hand slid around her waist. She rolled up on top of him. When the record was over, she got up and put on another one. Then she came to the window. She looked up at me for a few moments. The night was clear. There was nothing in the sky except for me and the moon. Then she pulled down the window shade and turned out the light. This episode of Too Much Information is called Man Without a Country, Part 1. It was written and produced by Benjamin Walker with Bill Bowen and Laura Mayer. It featured Howard Zinn, Dave Israel, Dave Dudley, and Energumino Garcia. Special thanks to Galeb Numa and Zoe Trod. On the TMI page, you will find links and images, and you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. All that at WFMU.org.